Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. The third week of Georgia's legislative session is now behind us. Lawmakers in the House and Senate have burned through seven out of 40 scheduled days. It is budget time at the Capitol, and state legislators have been hearing from state agencies pressing their needs for next year's fiscal plan. GPB politics reporter Stephen Fowler has kept a close watch on the action under the Gold Dome and is here with an update. Good morning. Good morning. Well, thanks for being here. It has been three weeks since Brian Kemp was sworn in as governor and the legislative session kicked off. Why then is it only through day seven of lawmaking? How how did the schedule work? So time is a magical thing in state government. The legislative session happens when both the House and Senate are there working at the same time. They gavel in, they get some stuff done, and then they gavel out. But in between those days and times, there's committee meetings, there's caucus meetings, there's uh, the weekends, things like that. And last week, there were three days for budget hearings for all the different state agencies and departments to say, this is what we want in our chunk of the budget. So there's a lot of work that gets done out in and around the actual session proper. So that's why we're only through day seven, but there's been three weeks of things happening. Is that where the real politics unfolds off the Senate floor? Well, yeah. off the floor? Oh, yeah. I mean, you have 236 legislators in two different chambers, hundreds of bills and things to get filed. So there's a lot of work that has to get done outside of the official gavel in, you know, we're here to get stuff done. So there's where a lot of work happens outside of the official chamber. The dominant bill on the table right now is the state budget. Governor Kemp's spending plan totals a record $27.5 billion for the fiscal year beginning on July 1st. Here, here he is presenting his budget. We need a solid K-12 through education system that prepares our students to pursue higher education opportunities in our university, in our technical college systems, and to be able to gain the skills that they need for the jobs of not only today, but more importantly, the jobs of tomorrow. Obviously, education, one of his priorities. How did his numbers stack up? Well, so the $27.5 billion is a record budget. Last fiscal year, the state asked for about $26 billion. So you have $1.5 billion difference. Much of that comes from these educational priorities that Governor Kemp talks about. The biggest is a $3,000 raise for certified teachers and some other education employees. That's going to be about half a billion dollars. And another big thing that he asked for, non-educated related, is a 2% merit pay increase for state employees. And some other priorities we have are $69 million for school safety funding and funding for mental health counselors in each public high school across Georgia. So state employees have not had a raise in some time. Is that right? There have been maybe two to three raises in the past 10 years that have been, and this is a merit pay raise, so not every worker gets the raise, but they have these pools of money that different state agencies can do annual reviews and then give raises from there. So Governor Kemp gets to write the budget, but needs lawmakers to pass it. Now they're holding hearings about potential revisions and the state agencies and other interested parties lobbying to get their piece of the spending pie. But for us, what are some of the items we should be on the lookout for? 
Well, really everything, because it's our money as state taxpayers and things like that. But, I mean, you have a variety of different departments asking for things. I mean, the state transportation people are asking for roads and bridges repairs and things like that. One thing I'm keeping an eye on is the Secretary of State's office, who has asked for $150 million to update and replace Georgia's voting system. Now, about $100 million of that would go towards actual machines, which right now Secretary of State Raffensperger has indicated he would prefer something called a ballot marking device. But the rest of the $50 million would go towards implementing training and educating Georgia voters about the difference and things like that. So that's one big chunk. Uh, another thing to be looking out for is the school safety grants. It's actually being put into this year's budget, so schools would have that money before July 1st to be able to do that. So how do they prioritize which bills come up first? Is it just how they churn through the committees? Well, some of it depends on, you know, a bill has to be filed to be discussed. And some of the bills have not been dropped yet. The budget bills have like the generic bills for that. So they'll come up soon. Um, But some of it depends on the lawmaker's prerogative. Once they get filed, then the House and the Senate assigns them to these committees, and then the committees have to meet to hear the pros and cons of the bills and figure out how much it would cost if it has something to do with money. And so it kind of depends on the committee chairman and then the Speaker of the House and the Lieutenant Governor in assigning these bills and getting those priorities. So some of the things that we've seen and heard before that haven't passed that maybe try to come up each year, maybe they're not going to get assigned to the committee anytime soon and get discussed. But things like the budget, that's the big ticket item. That's the only thing lawmakers have to pass this session. Okay. So Kemp, of course, campaigned on lowering government spending. I recall the ad with chainsaws and explosives. Yet he's proposing a budget increase. How does that jive with his promises? And and where's this proposed money supposed to come from? Well, Virginia, keep in mind that Brian Kemp has been governor for less than a month. The budget happens regardless of who's governor, and he's still getting his bearings, his policy bearings, his budget bearings. And so he's focused on the education priorities and things. But, I mean, really, three weeks into the job, he hasn't had a chance to take a look at the big picture and ask the agencies, what do you need? How do you need it? So this is a pivotal time for him to understand how the state budget works and what it does. And he still has three more years in this term to do those promises of cutting spending and lowering taxes and maybe chainsaws. And <laughs> any thoughts now on which particular departments, which have his ear? Well, I mean, education is a big priority. It's something bipartisan that Democrats and Republicans agree needs to be fixed and dealt with. Healthcare. Uh, that's the two biggest parts of the state budget are health care and education. So those are areas that obviously have the governor's ear, but they're also things that maybe the governor and his staff will look at and find ways to streamline, so to speak, to maybe cut down on some of the spending. During the budget hearings, some of the lawmakers on the Appropriations Committee asked about different programs and how they could cut down the funding and cut down, not cut down the funding, but streamline the process and do things so to help the state spend less. Okay. I'm speaking with GPB politics reporter Stephen Fowler. He's kind of our eyes and ears at the state capitol and updates us most Fridays during the legislative session, which was a little bit of a hiccup this week, a slight interchamber controversy. The threat of severe weather shut down the state government on Tuesday. 
I understand that caused some confusion about whether lawmakers would actually be in session. How does this work? Well, sort of. There was some confusion on Monday before it happened. Uh, the Senate, there are fewer members, fewer things to go on. The Senate pieced out and said, okay, we're done for the day and um, bad weather's happening tomorrow. So we're going to gavel in and gavel out and everyone stay safe off the ice. The House, House Speaker David Ralston's been there longer. Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan's new. And the House had some different things to say about it because they wanted to actually get some work done. All right. So let's hear just a little clip of what you brought us uh, from what happened in both chambers. The eyes clearly have it. And the Senate is adjourned. Everyone be careful. The eyes have it and this house will be adjourned until 1 p.m. tomorrow with instructions for you to check your email. Check your email. So what happens in this kind of situation? What's supposed to happen? Well, that first clip was Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan gaveling out the Senate, and the second clip was House Speaker David Ralston gaveling out the House. So Speaker Ralston said what's supposed to happen is both chambers get together and decide what to do in the case of severe weather. They could have just canceled the whole day, nobody come in, no legislative day happened, and everyone stayed home and stayed warm. Or they could have both come in and gaveled in later or done something to get a little bit of work done so that the day wasn't completely wasted. But since the Senate already decided that they were just going to have three people come in, gavel in and gavel out in like 60 seconds, no work could get accomplished in the Senate. The House pushed things back a little bit later so they could read through some bills and do some other work and have some committee meetings. So really what this means, big picture, is legislative day six was Burned. wasted. Yeah. Burned. Okay. You know. or, fro- or frozen or not frozen. Frozen, frozen, as the case may be. Right. All right. On Wednesday, a bipartisan group of lawmakers held a press conference to announce renewed efforts to pass the Equal Rights Amendment. Here is Democratic Senator Gloria Butler of Stone Mountain. The first language resembling the ERA was introduced to Congress in 1923. Do we really want to reach a hundred year anniversary of saying no? So what exactly is proposed in this Equal Rights Amendment? So there are two proposals in the Senate, and then there'll be follow-up legislation in the House that would just ratify the Equal Rights Amendment. Um, It's like two sentences long. I'm uh, pulling it up here now. But it would ratify the Equal Rights Amendment that says equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. Now, 37 states have already ratified that. 38 are needed, in theory, to add it to the Constitution. Now, there's a few hiccups here. No state has been the 38th. And this was uh, passed by Congress several decades ago, so the time limit may be up. But the theory here is if Georgia is the 38th state to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment, then U.S. Congress could change the deadline, and then this amendment could become added to the Constitution. Well, that's monumental. Is Georgia likely to pass it now? Well, it's unclear. It's been brought up before and obviously hasn't made it through. But there are enough votes in the Senate. That's according to Republican Senator Renee Unterman, who sponsored one version of the bill, and Democrat Nan Orock, who sponsored an identical version. There's a Republican and a Democrat version of the bill because Senator Unterman said if the Republican male leadership doesn't want to pass a Democrat bill, well, I'm a Republican, so there should be no excuse. So enough Republicans signed on to this measure, plus all of the Democrats in the Senate, that it could pass the Senate. Now, the House is a different question. That remains to be seen.
All right. Uh, in adjacent Georgia political news, former gubernatorial candidate Stacey Abrams is going to be delivering the Democratic response to the State of the Union on Tuesday. Why was she chosen? Well, Stacey Abrams is record setting and kind of a trailblazer in many reasons. She is the fir- would have been the first African-American female governor. She's the first nominee for a major party. This is an African-American woman. And She's the first non-elected official to be delivering a State of the Union response address, and she's the first African-American woman to do so. And Senator Chuck Schumer announced this earlier this week and said, really, it's the work that she's done on advocating for voting rights. She also is a fresh new face in national politics, got a lot of attention and things like that. And she showed a roadmap for Democrats to be able to win by bringing new voters into the fold instead of trying to change people's minds. Although she did that, too, in many cases. So it's a pretty high profile and high stakes that we've seen people rise and fall based on this kind of rebuttal. What does it mean for her? Well, for her, she's been staying active ever since she uh, announced that she was ending her gubernatorial campaign. She launched a voting rights group called Fair Fight Action that's suing Georgia and its election system and everything like that. But really, this is a pivotal point for her because many people are trying to draft her into running for U.S. Senate in 2020 against Republican David Perdue. Now, one thing in covering Stacey Abrams, she's been gathering information, gathering resources, meeting in Washington with Senators Kamala Harris and Schumer and all these different people to gather as much information. I wouldn't be surprised if she delivers this response and it's received well by Democrats across the country, and that helps push her towards that run for Senate in 2020. And if it's not received well? Well... Who knows? <laughs> this is the world of politics. Exactly. Well, Stephen Profile, thank you. Stephen Fowler, thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> thank you for having me. GBB Politics reporter Stephen Fowler. You can find him at the state capitol covering the legislative and the governor's office most days. He's also the host of the GP education, GBB Education Series, Peach State Politics, that answers questions that you have about how the state government works. Stay with us. We're going to hear from a legendary Atlanta voice. James Allipat Patrick, who kept the radio air waves sizzling for decades in Atlanta. That's after the break, when On Second Thought continues. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Black History Month starts today, and Georgia has a long line of African-American trailblazers to celebrate. Today, we're learning about a truly original mouth of the South, James Allipat Patrick. Atlantans first heard the DJ in 1951 when he hit the airwaves on the city's first black-owned radio station, WERD. Oh, yeah, it's about four minutes after five o'clock, and this is 1480 on your dial in Atlanta, Georgia. I tell you... Pat died at age 95 in 2015, but filmmaker Tom Roach documented his life in Alley Pat. The music is recorded, and he's joining me via Skype from New Orleans. Hello, Tom. Good morning, Virginia. You know, you do a serious and thoughtful show every day, and we're now going to throw all of that out the window for the next 15 minutes, aren't we? It must have been so much fun to go through this tape. This man was a real character. 
I sat in the uh, edit studio and laughed and laughed and laughed and uh, built this uh, movie over, over the course of seven or eight years on weekends at a big post-production facility that was vacant uh, Saturday and Sunday with all of this expensive gear uh, sitting idle. And I thought, I'll just dive in and do this. And it was sort of self-centered of me to start working on a film of an 81-year-old guy and then spend seven years to get it done. But he lived to see it, and it came in first place at the Atlanta Film Festival, to everyone's surprise. Well, it's I can't wait to dig into it. And here to do that with us is Richie DeForest. He's a gatekeeper now at the WERD Museum in Atlanta, which is preserving the legacy of Ali Pat and other black artists who face discrimination, especially during Jim Crow. And welcome, Richie. Good morning. Good morning, Tom. Thank you. Hey, Richie. Great hey, to hear your What's voice. You know, on? I think I that? just called you Richie instead of Reese. Well, I answered to all of them <laughs> <laughs> because I know what you mean. Yeah. But it's Reese. Yes. All right, Tom. To those who don't know or never heard of Ali Pat, who was he? Tell us a little bit about his background. Well, he uh, kind of played the fool on the air, but he was actually a, a, a pretty studious guy. He was uh, the child of an architect in Montezuma, Georgia. And uh, he uh, enrolled in Morehouse in pre-med. And then one day, someone uh, at this brand new station, which was uh, called a Negro format station, heard Pat calling bingo somewhere and said, you've got a great radio voice. Why don't you come down and try out? And Pat really didn't want to do it. But on the other hand, he knew that he was at Morehouse taking medicine, uh, medical training, and he really was more interested in chasing girls. And so he gave radio a try and left the uh, the Morehouse medical uh, uh, student grind behind. And the rest is, is broadcast history. Well, let's hear a little bit of that. Here he is doing his thing on the air. Just about the at a break of day. Yeah. I know what you're talking about. Feel your pillow. Yeah. And she ain't down no more. Where your baby used to lay. Hey, don't start me to cry, Rev. You see, he jumped around stations for decades after his start in 1951. He did a TV show. He emceed many live shows. Why was that voice, like Ali Pat, so important at that time and place? What do you think, Reese? Well, Ali Pat, uh, everything lined up for him. The music, the environment. Um, the personalities, the fact that WERD was the first black-owned radio station in North America. And it just seems, as I'm looking at it um, from a distant perspective, it just seems like everything was just lined up perfect, and he was the perfect personality for that particular time. It was a he beautiful, was a beautiful age for, for yeah. black music, and uh, first hitting the mainstream in America. But you, Tom, you were a young white disc jockey when you first heard Ali Pat. How'd you come to meet him? Well, I uh, was would sit in traffic in Atlanta uh, listening to his show, just crying with laughter. And not only was the music great, but then as a DJ, I also was into sort of the found art of dead air and records at the wrong speed and air conditioner hum <laughs> and everything that goes along with a low-budget station. And one day, uh, we it was, it was Christmas Day, and I was with a friend um, uh, down in South Atlanta, and we'd had a little taste, as Allie Pat would say, and we thought, let's Let's just get in the car and go over there and bang on the door and see what happens. And 
And uh, uh, so we went down there because Pat was on the air complaining that it was Christmas and he had to work. And um, the door threw open and he said, you, you white boys ain't got nothing better to do than to come down here and F with me. And we thought, uh-oh, we're in trouble now. And then he changed to a big, broad smile and invited us in. And that's where we saw the madhouse that was his little studio with the VU meters pegging out and records you know, all over the place. And him just having a great, fun time. And that's that was just his environment. He worked all alone and created this fantastic soundscape every day. And eventually I got to know him a little better and decided to take the 30 hours of tapes I had, I had acquired over the years. So again, I would have met him maybe in 89 and then around 2002, we signed a deal to uh, make the movie. But when I say signed a deal, he said, where's my money? And I said, well, there's not going to be any money. And at the end of the day, as successful as the film has been, I've never made a dime off of it. Hmm. Well, I can imagine for seven years of work. But let's hear a little bit more of him, because that's really the point of being here. Atlantans may remember his freestyled ads. Here is one of many used in your film. Ray's told you that they are good arrangers. They can make arrangements for any occasion. If it's death or wedding, of course, a wedding and death are very um, uh, synonymous. Uh, one is about as bad as the other. When you get married, you actually die, and when you die, you dead also. So, they, they... so that's for Flowers by the Vineyards. He did them for hair salons, restaurants, tire shops, clothing stores. And we're told in the film that business owners paid him not the many stations he worked for. And these were not always glowing endorsements. Why did they keep coming back? Oh, I just think that uh, any publicity is good publicity. And uh, in the film, we also feature uh, the the wonderful and heavenly H. Johnson. Um, from, He's you know, the long- still on WABE. Yes, he is. Still on WABE. And he says that he was so influenced by Ali Pat that he went on the air and he tried to make fun of sponsors and promptly got in big trouble for it, uh, just proving that there's, there's, a, there's a certain art to the insult. And H didn't have it. And you just don't do that <laughs> on the radio. But Pat was the kind of guy he drove around town in a big car with the windows always down so he could just shuck and jive with anybody out on the sidewalk and everybody knew him and everybody expected that from him and if he didn't insult them he, people said pat are you feeling all right today <laughs> well we see were there yes. other djs like him on the air at that time i mean we certainly have our wild djs but what did he bring that was so distinctive there were definitely other djs i mean there was um i'm trying to think of the dj who had his show um you might know his name. Uh, his show was Purple Grotto. They called him Cuz Herb Lance. Mm-hmm. But no one had the comic instincts of the great Ali Pat. And <laughs> I am just grateful to have uh, met him on several occasions on October 3rd of uh, every year, which is when WERD went on the air. We have a party for WERD and Ali Pat. And Ali Pat attended a couple of those parties. Mm-hmm. Did other DJs try to imitate his style? Um, not. I, I don't really have a great deal of information of anyone that might have tried to influence his style. I think uh, Ali Pat was, you know, had his own lane, his own planet. Tom, did white people listen to WERD or, or, or follow his advice to shop on Auburn Avenue? 
Uh, well, uh, you know, when I made the movie, I realized as, as a lister um, that pretty much everybody on the south side of Atlanta knew who he was, and very few people on the north side of the black-white divide, shall we say, knew, other than jazz freaks and blues freaks and crazy radio so when I started recording his shows, uh, I, did, I did it just for my own. I was just frustrated these, this wonderful material was going out into the airwaves and was lost forever. So I started recording it and eventually acquired 30 hours of, of cassettes. And then they sat in a shoebox in my basement uh, for a couple decades. And only later did I come and, and make a film. And that rambling answer did not that No, you did not, did not answer, answer my question. question. Thank so you very much. <laughs> but somebody, somebody in your film does say, you know, uh, that, that, you know, this was a glimpse into a community that he knew nothing about. And of course, most of this is during segregation. So there wasn't a lot of sort of crossover of culture of other than yes. through music. And so that, that gets back into the fact of, for instance, when Pat would have Hosea Williams on for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, an hour, an hour and a half with no music, no station IDs, and they were just, you know, just shooting the breeze. It was a conversation I would not have heard otherwise, and I learned a lot from it, uh, just to learn learned a lot about culture. And this gets back to uh, the importance of black radio, especially WERD in the 1950s and the emergence of what they called Negro format radio. In the 40s, the radios were large. They had tubes. They stayed in the living room. In the 50s, the radios got smaller and moved up into the bedrooms. And the white audience could listen to black music and black culture that was at variance with what their racist parents might have been telling them. And they could hear the real Fats Domino and not the Pat Boone version, etc. And so this this uh, b you know black radio uh, afforded white listenership to dig deep into the culture and learn a lot and actually start to say uh, discrimination is wrong. What are these people talking about? Mm. That's Tom Roach. His documentary film about the legendary DJ Ali Pat won the Founders and Directors Award at the Atlanta Film Festival. Reese DeForest is yes. also with us. He's in charge of a museum dedicated to Atlanta's black history, including WERD radio. Well, uh, white audience aside, there was he played such an important role in African-American history. There's, there are terrific bits in the film of a conversation between Pat and former civil rights leader and UN ambassador Andrew Young. And you spoke with him afterwards. Here he is talking about Pat in the film. The thing that I think Pat became famous for, in fact, I think he was a, he was really a forerunner to Tom Joyner and all of these folks. Stuff they're doing now, you were doing years ago. Years ago. And he used to say, all right, now it's time to get up and get them pink curlers out of your head and get them out before you leave the house. Don't be standing up at the bus stop still taking out the curlers. And for God's sake, don't be driving down the road still trying to get them damn curlers out of your head. What do you think, Reese? Was he the first shock jock? Oh, I, I think so. Uh, let me just share this with you. I learned that um, in 1967, Dr. Martin Luther King spoke to the Association of Radio and TV Broadcasters in terms of the significance that the DJ played in the breaking down of the um, walls of segregation. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and uh, th this is a wonderful little story. Uh, we WERD takes music to senior homes um, throughout the city. Mm -hmm. And um, this one senior home I went to, this little small white lady pulls me aside and she says, you know, when I was a teenager, I would take my transistor radio upstairs in the closet. There in the you attic. go. 
and listen to WERD. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, the, right? You're freed from the family console. But, exactly. But do you think, Reese, there was also a little bit of shock at hearing a black man on the air at a time not being polished or, you know, doing the code switching that often happened for a black man in, in a mass audience? Well, I mean, during that era within the black community, that was not a big deal. It was probably, um, I mean, it was just natural conversation. Mm-hmm. But unguarded conversations. Well, Mm -hmm. right. Exactly. Well, he was, of course, a forerunner on the radio. But Andrew Young and Ali Pat also talked about Pat's role as the first black bail bondsman in Atlanta in the early 1960s. He was instrumental in the civil rights movement for getting activists, including Martin Luther King Jr., now Congressman John Lewis, Ralph Abernathy, many others out of jail. Now, here's Pat speaking on air about one of those runs. Georgia Towns and I was scared to death that one of them crackers was going to shoot me for coming down there getting those uh, quote unquote out of jail. That's what they used to say. Yeah, he's, he tells a similar story at Hosea Williams' funeral, you know, about a sheriff with tobacco juice running down his both sides of his mouth. You know, he can't even read. Had anyone heard anything like this on the radio, Reese? Not, not to my knowledge. Yeah. How about you, Tom? I, I don't know where to begin. Um, he, um, uh, you know, when he spoke at Hosea's funeral, he talked about facing down those sheriffs, and he just would quietly tell the sheriff, well, I, he wouldn't tell the sheriff he was a, a black male bondsman. He'd tell the sheriff, I work for a white man in Atlanta. <laughs> and that just brought the house down at, at uh, Ebenezer when uh, when uh, Pat spoke at Hosea's funeral. You know, we really haven't mentioned that um, uh, since the film is so full of uh, fantastic music that would cost a fortune to license, it's I, I give it away for free. Mm-hmm. You can see it anytime if you just search Alley Pat. Vimeo. Mm-hmm. It's a, uh, there's a video service called Video Vimeo, V-I-M-E-O, Ali Pat Vimeo. And we could also put a link on your side. Yeah, we'll do that. We'll do that. Hey, hey, you know, all- cut out with the D- the promotional DJ stuff. Let's get back to the story here. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> I'll all right. up straight. <laughs> well, was there any retribution for Pat for his work in the civil rights movement? Um, what do you mean? Well, you know, did he suffer? I mean, many people who were active in the civil rights movement were targeted. Was he, as a very public personality, talking about things like, you know, cracker sheriffs in South Georgia? Oh, no, I don't think so at all. I think because his, his audience was exclusively African-American with just a, a, a few per, tiny percent uh, white listeners. Uh, he was actually very brave because the civil rights workers would go to these small towns en masse during the day. And then Pat would come down to these small towns at night alone with a suitcase full of money uh, to bail them out. So um, I think he, he uh, had a lot of respect in the community for that, that level of bravery. Mm-hmm. Tell me how he got his name, Ali Pat, quickly. We're up against a break. Um, well, um, uh, his uh, uh, his listeners said that you know his 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 uh, initial shows on WYZE sounded like blues from the alley, mm-hmm. and so that morphed into Ali Pat. Well, let's hear a little bit of the blues that he loved to give people a taste of as we head into a break. We are going to come right back in a minute with the the maker, uh, Tom Roche. He's the documentary filmmaker. He made the film about the legendary DJ Ali Pat and also Reese DeForest, who's in charge of a museum dedicated to Atlanta's black history, including Negro-owned, as it was called, 
WERD Radio. And we'll leave you with some Howlin' Wolf, All one right. of Alley Pat's favorites. We'll be back with more on Second Thought in just a minute. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott, and we're continuing our conversation about a pioneer of black radio on this first day of Black History Month, James Patrick, known as Alley Pat. Now, whether you lived in uh, Atlanta forever or you're just pulling into town, he is one of the characters who have helped shape the character of Atlanta. Tom Roach is a longtime Atlantan who now lives in New Orleans, where he's joining us on Skype. And he worked with Pat and is the writer, editor, and producer of a documentary feature called Alley Pat. The music is recorded. Reese DeForest is with us. He's in charge of preserving the WERD studio. That's at the Madam C.J. Walker Museum. Both of them here. Uh, Tom, I want to ask you about, there's a bit in your film when Alley Pat reflects on his relationship with the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. Let's just hear this. This is with the night before he left for Memphis. I was with him the night before he went to Memphis which was on a Sunday night. They had a retreat for SCLC at the Regency Hotel downtown. And uh, he was in his suite with his wife, and I was on the same floor. We were having a party. He came out of the suite to the party in his pajamas and his night robe, and he sat up there with us, and drink scotch and soda. What a, a poignant memory, considering, of course, what happened after that. What was his relationship like with the civil rights movement, leaders like King and Lewis and Hosea Williams? Well, oh, go ahead. Oh, was that Reese? No, no, go ahead, Tom. Okay. Um, well, you know, he had known uh, Dr. King as just an ordinary Joe. Pat says uh, he didn't give a damn about money. He didn't give a damn about publicity. He just was an ordinary guy. But at the same time, Pat knew that um, uh, you know. At the time, Dr. King passed away. Pat reflected that for Dr. King, there was no there was no other way out. Uh, he knew this was going to happen someday, and he and Pat uh, reflected that he was surprised that the assassination of King didn't happen sooner. Mm. So he was uh, he was braced for that news, and it's interesting to hear you play back that piece about uh, the night before. You know, as an ed- as a film editor, you're always trying to truncate people's comments so they can make their point quickly and you can move on and fit more stories in. But an editor also needs to know when to just leave it alone. Mm -hmm. This is history. Pat talking about the last night of King's life. And as an editor, editor, you just cue that up and you just let it play and you use every scrap of it. Mm. Uh, And Reese, for you, uh, you know, you know about his history in radio. One of them was at WYZE, which was the gospel music station. And yet he didn't seem to have a lot of love for a lot of preachers, <laughs> aside from Dr. King. Well, I just think he was just telling it the way it was. I don't think there was any animosity there. It's just the reality of um, his experiences. Right. Well, okay, so you mentioned before, Tom, the funeral of Hosea Williams. 
Andrew Young was there, Jesse Jackson, the cream of the civil rights era there. And and Pat had everybody absolutely in stitches. Um, you know, he's not the maker of speeches or an organizer, but brought them all down, brought down the house, really. Let's hear just a little bit of that. When I got here, uh, the operator called me and said, Mr. Patrick, will you please uh, take all of these calls off of your mailbox? I said, I'm not supposed to have any calls. I said, but I'll see where they are. I picked up the phone and began to go through the mailbox, and all of his women was calling me to find out how he was. So what did it mean to have that particular voice? You know, you're, you're, you're not talking about um, august ideas or pushing things forward, but, but that kind of sense of humor. What did that mean for the community? Reese, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, uh, no, not really. How about you, Tom? Do you want to follow up? Well, the, if, if you've never seen the entire Hosea Williams funeral eulogy from Pat, it's an absolute must-see. And when, I, when that happened, I was, I was just wrapping up the film, and it was a 60-minute film. And when that happened, I saw it, and I just said, my film just became an 85-minute film mm. because we've just got to put all of this in and let it run. Uh, again, leave it alone, truncate it maybe a little bit. But that just showed how Pat could get fired up and the more the audience fired him up he would just he would just charge forward and it's fascinating to uh to have as a filmmaker to have sort of become friends with andy young and become friends with all these civil rights pioneers and it's it's a it's an odd burden when a white uh, filmmaker takes on black history, especially with a lot of sensitive language. Um, and you just have to make sure you get it right, do test screenings. And the end result is when I do screenings, the white viewers to a person come up and say, wow, what a wild ride that was. And the black viewers to a person come up to me and say, thank you. Well, thank you for speaking with us about Ali Pat Tom Roach. Appreciate you being here. And I hope, again, you can check out Alley Pat Vimeo. Look it up. You can stream the film online for free. Or Tom. you can come by the studio because we play it. Oh, right there. All there you go. History Month, that would be a beautiful <laughs> thing for somebody who's visiting Atlanta to see a great glimpse of Atlanta. Reese DeForest, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Information on where to find him and that studio and also the film at gpbnews.org. Just an old sweet song Keeps Georgia on my mind Okay, moving on to the present. 1994, it was the Dallas Cowboys and the Buffalo Bills. In 2000, the St. Louis Rams and the Tennessee Titans. When a classic finish on the field was overshadowed by two ice storms and two murders involving Hall of Fame linebacker Ray Lewis. Well, the Super Bowl is again in Atlanta, and the Los Angeles Rams will face the New England Patriots at Mercedes-Benz Stadium on Sunday. Atlanta, again, as a city, faces the challenge of hosting the nation's most-watched sports events. So what's on tap for this weekend? GPB reporter Ross Terrell and Morning Edition producer Taylor Gant are here to talk about logistics and even a little sports at the Super Bowl. Welcome to you both. Good morning. How's it going? Thanks for being here. So a million people expected in downtown Atlanta over the course of a week. A lot of people. Ross, what's the breakdown? Who's headed here? 
Yeah, so uh, Atlanta city officials are expecting about 150,000 people from out of town to come here. And uh, you talk about the fans of the team, sheer celebrity power, uh, a number of events will be going on, and then just people, locals, who want to experience the game and kind of go downtown and get in the mix. How's the city dealing with the influx? Uh, they're asking people to take Mar, though. That, <laughs> that seems to be the solution. We know how traffic is here. It's awful. Um, so they're saying, please use Mar to get from the airport to the hotel, to get from your hotel downtown. Um, even Lime and or Lime scooters and Lyft, they're offering discounts to and from MARTA stations. Uh, so public transit seems to be the way to go. And MARTA says it is prepared for this surge of passengers. MARTA police are going to be in all 38 stations, and the agency even solicited help from around the country. Let's hear. Thriving in Atlanta right now. So we're just bigger and we're better in Atlanta than we were back in 2000. Okay, well, we're going to say that they were, they're expecting everybody. What, what about, these transit officers are coming from all over the country. Has this ever happened before? Or isn't that common? Right, so uh, Martha Police Chief Wanda Dunham, she held a call with uh, the top 20 transit agencies. And this was a practice they learned from sending teams to Houston and Minnesota, where the past two games were. Um, and she says, she just said, who wants to be a part of history? And cities responded. So you'll have transit officers from Denver, from Minnesota, uh, from across the country uh, who will be here helping and even local jurisdictions. Uh, Clayton County, they'll have officers at Monday stations. And as you mentioned, they will be at all 38 as far as Indian Creek, downtown. Do they even get a ticket? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. No ticket to the game. It's a tough one. Yeah. <laughs> well, this week, Marta bus drivers called in sick, hundreds of them in coordinated labor action. Is there a resolution in store before the weekend? Uh, we may not get it before the week, and they did go to court um, to force uh, the union to call, tell the drivers to come back to work. Strikes here in Georgia are illegal, uh, and they were negotiating a new contract. Um, Martha, the CEO, Jeffrey Parker, said it probably shouldn't affect rail service, just buses. Um, but I wouldn't expect that to have any slowdown on getting around this weekend. All right. So a whole lot of people expected to travel back home after the weekend. A max exodus expected on Monday. Taylor, what's the advice to people who live here and just need to get to work? Well, I would say uh, potentially take <laughs> <Marta>. downtown, <laughs> as, as Ross uh, eloquently said, take Marta if at all possible. And I know a lot of people I've talked to, you know, over the over the past week, they're avoiding downtown uh, at all possible. There's, you know, events that people had scheduled that had nothing to do with the Super Bowl. They're going to push it back until next weekend. So if at all possible, maybe stay away from the city because it's going to be a gridlock, uh, you know, if not just for, you know, Sunday, then a little bit Monday morning, too, as people try to get out of town. Yeah. What is the airport expected to be like on Monday? Well, it's. Hartsfield-Jackson Atlanta International Airport, which we always say ad nauseum, is the busiest airport in the world. Uh, so it's going to be the busiest airport in the world on Monday. Uh, the, the advice that we've been hearing is if you just get there so much earlier than potentially you think you need to, uh, to get through pre-check. Um, you know, this is obviously going to be a bigger story you know, if the partial government shutdown was still ongoing. Mm -hmm. With that being pushed back until later this month, at least a resolution potentially, uh, that's going to make things a, a bit better, but it's still going to be busy. So get there early and uh, get ready to to wait, you know, enjoy some Netflix or something like that. And when did they start? When does TSA open full force to let people in? 3 a.m., I think? 3 a.m., that's okay, right. Got it. Just just want to make sure. Taylor, if a person is listening to the game and wants to experience the excitement, doesn't have a ticket to the game, <laughs> why should they go downtown? Well, one big reason, uh, at least for the next couple days until Sunday, is the Super Bowl uh, experience, which is happening at the World Congress Center. Uh, you, there's a lot of, you know, interactive uh, displays. You can see a lot of cool memorabilia, you know, if you're a fan of football, but maybe not this game in particular. 
particular. And you could potentially take a picture with the Lombardi Trophy if you want to get, you know, your TSA pre-check mindset and stand in a really long line. <laughs> uh, so you can really experience that too. And then, of course, music is the is the other big thing. Um, there's been concerts all week through Centennial Olympic Park, curated by Jermaine Dupri. You've seen like Pastor Troy's been down there, Goody Mob the past couple days. Uh, and then tonight you're going to have uh, Post Malone and Aerosmith at State Farm Arena. There's a combination. And I know it's going to be interesting. And then tomorrow night, I think, is probably the big headliner. You know, going up uh, pretty much head to head against the Super Bowl, Cardi B and Bruno Mars at State Farm Arena. It's going to be huge. I know people around here are potentially very excited about that as well. Yeah, I know someone who have tickets. Um, so let's see. The halftime show has been making headlines for months. We talked about this, Ross, on the show. The upset over Maroon Five headlining rather than an Atlanta band. What's the lineup looking like now? Uh, so right now it's it's Maroon Five, Travis Scott, and Big Boy, who is an Atlanta native, uh, half of Outkast. Um, but interestingly enough, Maroon Five, well, they say the NFL canceled their press conference beforehand. Um, but each, both Maroon Five and Travis Scott, caught some backlash, and so now they are each donating uh, five hundred thousand to their respective organizations um, to try to help. We also, you know, Gladys Knight is an Atlanta native. She's singing the national anthem, and mm-hmm. she's even caught backlash. But she said, you know, Kaepernick's protests were never about the anthem, so this is about honoring that song, and it's not mm-hmm. necessarily going against him. And we have another Atlanta group. If not mistaken. Oh, that's right. Uh, Chloe and Hallie, uh, it's a pair of twin sisters from Atlanta. They're singing uh, America the Beautiful uh, built leading up to the game, too. So it seemed like really after the Maroon 5 thing, even outside of the anthem controversy, a lot of people were just mad about the decision in general. So they went Gladys Knight, Big Boy, Chloe and Hallie, just to make sure that there was an Atlanta theme to that whole show that people were really asking for. And Maroon 5's Adam Levine, you mentioned giving some donating to organizations like right. social justice organizations. And of course, the a few causes are taking advantage of the high visibility and planned demonstrations. What and where is planned? Uh, to today's Friday. Tomorrow, the NAACP and some organ- other organizations are actually holding a rally in Piedmont Park against Confederate monuments. That's a conversation that you know dominates here in Georgia when you talk politics, when you talk about Stone Mountain, which is one of the largest Confederate monuments we have in this country. Um, and there was a planned white supremacist, white power rally at Stone Mountain. They did not get a permit. And that actually, by my latest uh, findings, has actually been canceled. But some people are still saying, you know, show up if you can. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are also some counter demonstrators who are planning to go. Uh, So we will keep an eye on that. Well, the Super Bowl has taken place in Atlanta twice before. Taylor, remind us, what happened to the last one in 2000? Sure. So earlier this week, people were having panicked flashbacks (laughs) of the ice storms that hit in 2000. They really shut the city down. There was all of these wrecks. And, you know, even the teams had trouble just making it to practice before the game. Uh, And then you mentioned it in your opening, uh, uh, future Hall of Famer Ray Lewis was uh, in, in an incident. Uh, the thing was the night after the Super Bowl. Uh, a couple friends of his were in uh, a altercation. Uh, two men ended up dead. Uh, and uh, he was charged with murder, later acquitted. Uh, and so were the men he was with. It was ruled self-defense. You know, But obviously, it was uh, this incredibly huge story back then. And it's still something that's kind of followed him to this day as he's returning to the city for festivities this weekend. What is the public safety landscape like looking like here in Atlanta for in anticipation of the game? 
Uh, so Atlanta Police Chief Erica Shields, uh, they, they've been holding uh, public safety press conferences now since you know October. They're partnering with 40 organizations from the FBI, the Department of Homeland Security, um, local police agencies. Um, and the NFL is a top security event, meaning there's flight restrictions. That means no drones. Mm -hmm. uh, officials say, you know, they've been inundated with drones around the security, uh, the Super Bowl footprint. Leave those at home. They're not allowed. They've had mm -hmm. to talk to pilots, issue tickets, confiscate them. Um, but police are present. They are everywhere. Um, and the, the footprint is rather tight around the stadium. Right. And uh, uh, around the city, at the airports, at MARTA stations, also Team ATL, which you've been reporting on. Who are these people? So it's 10,000 volunteers. That uh, is something. <laughs> yeah, people, they, they, they also don't get a ticket. So I guess, you know, what better way to get involved than to volunteer? And they're out and about in hotels Anywhere you can think of, just kind of helping people navigate the city, giving tips on where to go. Um, I went out and talked to a few of them. They're friendly. 22 languages are spoke uh, among the entire group, including sign language. So if you need some help, find a volunteer. <laughs> that's, that's good. Okay, so minute left. We got the volunteers. We got the transportation, public safety. What about the actual game? What are we expecting to see on the field? Well, it's going to be exciting. It's it's it's, it's strange to think back, you know, uh, 18 years ago. You know, the last time the Rams and the Patriots played in Super Bowl 35, it was the it was Tom Brady, who's now the grizzled veteran. He was the fresh faced guy, kind of straight out of college. Uh, this is the, that was the first Super Bowl he won. Now he's going for number six. Uh, it was going to it'd be huge, obviously for his legacy. Bill Belichick, they both have six rings. Uh, you know, but also the the Rams. Sean McVay, he's a local guy. He's you know he's played high school ball here. Uh, if they get a win, too, it would be kind of the, the start of a new generation, uh, a new regime. What, 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 how do you feel about that, Ross? I got two words in one name, Tom Brady. <laughs> <laughs> you cannot bet against this man. And I won't. <laughs> Thank you. Six, ring number six coming up. Ross Terrell, reporter here at GPB, Taylor Gant, Morning Edition producer. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thanks, Virginia. Thanks for having us. Super Bowl activities, travel alerts, protests, all related coverage are going to be updated throughout the weekend here. You can go to gpbnews.org and catch Ross and Tyler. Taylor. They're going to be back here on Monday with recaps of everything that happens. Well, that is it for today on Second Thought. It's produced by Elena Rivera, Leighton Raul, Raven Taylor, and Amelia Brock. Alex Word is our engineer, Don Smith, our dean of grammar, and Amy Kylie, senior producer. Have a beautiful weekend. Stay safe and take Marta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.